the number one reason that people lose their job is because of their interpersonal skills. It's not their technical skills. It's these soft topics that we treat as less important that, as it turns out, are the most important thing. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode two, and my guests today are Michelle Sopp from the Oklahoma Society of CPAs, Jennifer Alexa from the Georgia Society of CPAs, Chris Fleck, and Brett Johnson from the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants. Our discussion centers around the major takeaways from the 2018 National CPE Educators Conference that was held earlier this year. Please share this episode with people that you know who are in the learning and development business because it contains a lot of information that applies across industries and professions. So there's a lot to get to. So let's get to the interview. I'm so excited today to be joined with Michelle Sopp and Jennifer Alexa. And Michelle is the Vice President of Learning for the Oklahoma Society of CPAs. And Jennifer is the Director of Education and Training for the Georgia Society of CPAs. And Michelle was the chair for the 2018 National CPE Educators Conference, which was held in New Orleans on February 28th through March 2nd. And I wanted to get them on the podcast to kind of get an idea, one from Michelle to find out since she was the chair of it, her, her thoughts and stuff on putting this together, what they wanted to accomplish, did they re- did they meet their goals? And from Jennifer, who's uh, been in the profession for about 10 years and, and been to a number of these conferences, get her take on what she heard and what, she, what her big takeaways from this conference were. So we'll start with Michelle. Congratulations, in my mind, on a successful conference. It seemed like it went over very well. Well, thanks, Peter. I appreciate that. Yes, we heard some great feedback. And from everything we've heard, people really enjoyed the conference. I'm also kind of glad it's over. (laughs) (laughs) So what was, as you were planning this conference, what was your main theme that you were trying to, what were you trying to hone in on? So the history of this conference is a conglomeration of the regional CPE meetings that were held each year. And we wanted a way to get everyone together, not just within their region, so we could learn from each other and expand our networks. So four years ago, I believe, is when the first CPA Educator Conference was created. We put together a listing of, of objectives. And I was not part of that, but I have been on the committee for three years. So I've been on it for most of the years that it's been in existence. And those objectives included creating a fun and dynamic learning environment, trying to avoid fluff, offering strategic sessions that for creativity, create sessions that challenge attendees to think differently, and then create multiple learning opportunities that foster collaboration, not only with other CPA educators, but also with our vendors. 
So we wanted to, that's kind of what we wanted to get out of this conference. And we've kept those objectives pretty much intact from the very first year. We've made very minimal tweaks to them because I think all these are still very important in today's learning environment. Great. Uh, I, I didn't realize that, that these were in place for since the inception of the national conference, and I've attended three three out of the four. So with this, I heard collaboration a lot. Was part of that thought of around collaboration went to those who you brought in to present at the conference and also creating those opportunities for vendors, speakers, learning professionals to have a conversation? Right. That's correct. Um, it was really important to give the attendees time to, to speak amongst themselves, to be able to speak honestly and openly. Some of our best ideas are stolen ideas, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. we always talk about not wanting to reinvent the wheel. And it's true because you may hear another state society say that, well, I tried that. It didn't work, but I did this instead. And either you can take that exactly how it is and possibly plop it into your state and have it work. You might have to tweak it some, especially if you're a big state or a smaller state and you're stealing from a different size state and therefore a different size budget. But it's something that's really important to be able to talk openly and honestly. So we had a session at the very beginning that was state society staff only, and it was time for them to get that information out there. What have you tried? What have you not tried? And just have honest conversation with no real direction. We had some ideas for talking points, but no true set direction of where that had to go. And then the flip side of that is being able to work with our vendors. So the rest of the conference vendors were allowed to um, attend all the sessions. Most of them were actually taught by some of our vendors. And it was a good time for us to get to know them better, to understand their reasoning behind working with us, behind our reasoning with working with them, um, and having good open conversations with them as well. Yeah, that's always important, to, to, especially from these guys, because, you know, as as this landscape has changed and in, in, in the CPU world with learning, and there's so many different ways of offering, it's, are, are they willing or I, I would assume, I'm like something that they're going down that path that they need to make some modifications in their delivery in order to fit it into your model. That's been a lot of the conversation. I don't think anyone's come up with the golden egg of the decision <laughs> of how it needs to go yet. But yes, the the learner today learns differently than they did 10, 20 years ago. And part of that is the vendor has right now a very structured format of how they offer content to us. But our learners are wanting a different structure. So we're in the middle trying to work with a vendor that has a set way that they're used to doing business. And we're also trying to sell to our learners and get them to stay and have relevancy with our organization of wanting to stay as a member or an attendee. So how do we find that balance to where all parties win? And so no one's really figured it out yet, like I said, but we're working towards it. And I think that's the important part. Yeah, it's it's you're right with the screens, and it's all it's also that that classroom experience of of engaging that audience versus lecturing to them. They don't they don't want to be lectured to. They want to be engaged. They want to be entertained per se. And I, I think um, it was Krista Rampy, and that's in her breakout session when they were talking about what do we need from the presenters, and someone made the comment about well, it, yeah, okay, it is a, a lot of it's accounting. And, I mean, and that stuff is dry. I mean, I've taught it, and it is dry. It's drier than a dry martini. But th- there are ways of of engaging and, and and making it somewhat entertaining in order to have that participant retain that information. 
Yes, and Peter, I think that you're you know you're one of those instructors that make sure that you always think of that on the forefront when you're presenting. I've sat in one of your classes before here in Oklahoma, and I was very entertained. So I think that's important for our instructors to realize. It's important for us to then communicate and for our vendors to communicate. So I think that's one of the aspects of that. So the other part of that is learning in smaller increments and getting people to sit down and do not necessarily nano learning, but even just one hour blocks, two hour blocks. The brain, there's been so many studies that the brain learns better in smaller increments. People absorb information better. So we're trying to also bring that to our learners. So getting instructors that are willing to maybe add in breaks, add in things like case studies or group discussions or anything that can break up an eight-hour day, if you still have to sell an eight-hour day, break it up to where at least their brain doesn't get overwhelmed. Right. And I think the one, you said give them more breaks, but I think you got a challenge there with the, with the strict rules of NASBA and having to adhere to. There's some states that I go to and I go, do I have any leeway? And they go, no. You got to maintain this. It is it is a little bit difficult with that, but I agree that the brain can only absorb. Um, my teaching philosophy is at some point, especially during the four day, the the mind can only absorb as much as the butt can endure. <laughs> and when and when, and when I when I see that look in their face, that oh my god, I need a break. I, I'll say, okay, stand up. We're taking a break now because, and I'll say that line, and I always it, it's a nice laugh. So being not involved in the planning of it, but being an attendee, what were some of the big takeaways that you saw or you, you felt that though? Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me on. Um, I'm, I just feel so honored to be invited, first of all, and to, to be invited to present with Michelle, who's one of the smartest women in the business. I'm just so thankful. Oh. Yeah. I, I, I second that. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to echo what Michelle was saying. Um, just getting together and learning from each other is a fantastic opportunity and we have to do that regularly or else we kind of lose our edge. So we study from each other uh, what the best practices are, who are the states that we want to benchmark. We become cheerleaders for each other. You know, when a state does kind of branch out and try something new, we want to learn from that person, but also cheer them on to try more experiments, if you will. You know, Georgia is a large state and we have a lot of programs going on and we have been successful in those programs, but I'm always impressed with even some of those smaller states who don't have the manpower to implement everything that we do, but man, they are smart and they're implementing new processes and they're learning new technologies in order to make their state very successful in their market. And I'm always impressed with that. You know, I always say that two heads are better than one. And in this case, for this conference, 100 heads are better than my head. And I always learn something when I walk away from that. We had a fantastic speaker in the very beginning. She opened the conference. Her name was Amy Better. She works for a company called Zero, And she is um, a technology innovations task force leader. She's very technology driven. And Amy was the perfect presenter to open this conference. You know, she reminded us of the technology and the generation changes that are coming. But there was this urgency in her tone that, you know, we need to wake up as professionals. So at first, her presentation definitely could have been viewed as what she would present at firms. So she talks about the changing technology, creating niche practices, rapidly a rapidly changing workforce, rapid changes with the way that audits are going to be done in the future. And that, at first glance, seems very important to firms, but not so much to state societies 
or the, in for this conference, education departments for state societies. But I really wanted to challenge us as a group to view that differently. We have to also approach that internally. We, we also as staffs have rapidly changing technology that four generations in the workplace have to adapt to right now. You know, we've got Generation Z, Generation Y, Generation X, and the baby boomers, and we're all trying to learn and adapt our practices to this new technology. So we have to be multi-talented in the way that we're um, approaching new needs that our customers have that they did not have before. Also, um, she had mentioned creating niche practices. So maybe in a state society, we don't have niche practices to address, but we do have customizable offerings that we can offer to our members. You know, we have different groups of people. You've got auditors and you've got tax folks and you've got industry members. And how can we customize our offerings to them, whether that be membership driven or education driven offerings? How can we make every member feel like they are our one and only special member? And that's what it's going to take, I think, to to keep them as a loyal customer of ours in the future. And then we have this rapidly changing workforce. You know, 35% of firms will change ownership in the next two to five years. That's the stat that Amy gave us. That is terrifying, I think, for a lot of people. And and Pete, we were talking earlier that, you know, that warning has been coming that baby boomers are going to be retiring. And now that it's here, it's almost like we didn't listen. And, <laughs> and now that time has come. And so our firms are looking to find successors is technology going to take a um, stand in that succession planning more than it ever has before? But also, how does that translate over to our state societies? Our employees are moving on at a faster rate than ever before. And people have said, you know, once you come to the nonprofit association side of things, you're not going to leave ever. And that's not the case that we're seeing. It is a fantastic profession to be in, but we also have to be prepared for our workforce to turn over faster than ever. And so how does technology play into that part as well? And how can we build a collaborative culture in our practice, in our business? And so she gave some examples of that being mentorship and a collaborative culture, um, room to learn and growth opportunities. And anyone who knows me knows I'm a very collaborative leader. And so I do not have all the answers and I'm not the smartest person in the room, but by gosh, I'm resourceful. Mm-hmm. My one of my favorite uh, say is we talk about collaboration. We talk about you know best practices. So I've always I've always said that the collective knowledge outside of your office far exceeds the collective knowledge inside of your office. Correct. And I don't know if if Amy said this or not. I heard it somewhere that if you haven't adapted to your technology within your organization, whether you're in business and industry or you're a firm, and if you're trying to recruit those who are coming out of college and you don't have the screens per se or don't have the technology per se, they're not going to come to you. They're just, it's not built for them. And they're the mass workforce coming in. If we keep it the way we did in the 70s and 80s, you're not going to have a succession plan. The succession plan, and we're seeing a lot of this right now, is firms are just being bought up. Mm-hmm. There's nobody that they've, they, they've nurtured in order to, to grow that that firm. Michelle, so Amy, obviously Amy Vetter, who, will, who I've already interviewed, and she'll be, I believe, 
the one before this episode is is aired. I mean, she's a rock star in the accounting community. One of the top 100 uh, accountants, according to Accounting Today, one of the top 100 women in accounting, just rock star status. How did you land her? <laughs> you know what? Um, I don't know if this is going to air before or after us, but Josh Goldman from Ohio knew her and called her up. So kudos to Josh. Kudos to Josh. Yeah, and hopefully I'm able to get him on, on the podcast to talk about that. But yeah, I've been I've been following Amy's career for a, a number of years and just love what she's doing and what she's talking about with, with that as, aspect of technology. The one session that I attended that just I because I really wanted to hear what you guys had to say about the discussion leaders that you bring in and some of the challenges that you had that was done by Kristen Rampey. I, I thought one, I thought she did a brilliant job because there was no very little use of PowerPoint. It was all those that group discussion and, and stuff. So I think that really came across in, in looking at everybody who who was attending it. Uh, and it was it was standing room only, but there was some excellent feedback that you guys were able to gather from that session. And, and I don't know if you remember any of that or, or have seen any of that feedback. My, one of my coworkers did attend and she has pages worth of notes. I just pulled it out from the two sessions. She went to both of Christian's sessions and got tons of great information. She kind of talked a lot about what Amy talked about and then just went further into it. Mm-hmm. So if they talked about you know, needing to engage. Well, how do you engage? Do you different tips and tricks you can use to get people out from behind a lectern or use a regular height table instead of a a podium height table? I mean, little tiny tips and tricks like that to really make it tangible for some of the staff that attended the conference. Because that was also one of our things we always talk about each year when planning this was, yes, we want to be applicable to the directors and the VPs, but a lot of the people that attend this are, are the staff. They're the seminar coordinators. They're the managers for conferences. They're whatever. So we need to run a whole gamut of content that could fit anyone's work style and work day. And Kristen really got, I think, to to that about the presenters and the logistics of some things. Yeah, I, I talked to her a- after that, and I interviewed her for a, a, a podcast that's going to be airing before this one. And we were talking about the session, and when she ended it, and, and she ended it, we were talking about, you know, you need to know your audience. And I asked her, what do you think that means? And she went down the path of, well, you need to know the demographics of that audience. You need to know, you know, generations and stuff. And I went, right, because it's really all about the audience, correct? And she goes, yeah. And I said, my take on understanding the audience is we have sat, being a CPA, I have sat in their seat. I know how painful it can be to listen to a tax, audit, ethics, any type from a lecture perspective. So when you've got a discussion leader who's coming in and they might be new, when they're coming in going, well, this is the way that I've always done it, they're not thinking about the audience. They're thinking about themselves. Or I or I don't right. anytime they go, I don't have time to do that. No, no, no. You need to make the time because your audience needs it. And I think that's one of the big challenges that the vendor community who, who provide this type of, of, of knowledge is, is the ability to train and, and to enhance by when we're putting a program together. I think about my program, think about who I'm delivering this program to and, and try to gather what their needs are and, and, and supply that to them. One of the things that she talked about in her second session was the differentiation between loyal clients and satisfied clients. And I think a lot of vendors nowadays think 
we have satisfied clients. Great. The problem is you want loyal clients. They're the ones that are going to have a positive experience Mm -hmm. and have an emotional tie to that experience. That is what keeps them loyal. That is what makes them coming back. You can be logistically satisfied. You can think, okay, everything was fine, nothing wrong with it, but is it great? Is there something that sticks out in your mind that is unique, that sets it apart, that makes you want to come back? And that's the difference, and that's how we're going to stay relevant going forward from a learning environment, I think. It's keeping those people loyal, not just satisfied. John Medina, who wrote the book Brain Rules, he's a neurologist who wrote this book that even I could understand it. So he really kind of put it in very in a context that I think everybody could understand. That, you know, basically, data is boring. Data doesn't drive decision making. It's it's tapping into somebody's emotion and, and having them. That's what they create that that loyal customer. That that one. And, and I think Amy used the term cherished advisor, not trusted advisor, uh, and, and kind of had that same same aspect to it. Would you agree, Jennifer? I definitely agree with that. We talked about some secrets to win learner loyalty in another session that we had by Tracy King. Tracy works with our Inspire ED. And I think for us to really think about who our target audience is in more than just a five-minute exercise, but to really understand what their needs are currently and where what their needs are going to be in the future, to know that we're invested in the future of their companies is what's going to help build that loyalty as well. And knowing everything that we can know about, about their company. And when I talk to CPAs, I go, you know, whether they're internal, uh, uh, whether they're in a firm or business and industry, I go, who do you know who your big clients are? Even if it's internal, your biggest customers. Yeah. Do you know their birthday? Somebody said, why would I want to know somebody's birthday? I said, doesn't it make you feel good when somebody says thank you or happy birthday on your birthday? Thank you. And, and they went, oh, yeah, I guess so. I said, better yet, do you know their spouse's birthday? And this real inquisitive look comes over their face. I said, don't you think that if you send an email two days before your biggest client's spouse's birthday just to remind them that their birthday's coming up. Don't you think that's going to make a big impression that you took the time out to do that? That creates that emotional grab. I think you just named our second side business. What do you guys think? We'll start that side business. (laughs) That'll be our side hustle, right? Is that that what the kids are calling it these days? The the gig will be part of the gig economy, Peter. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> I, I I think we need to flesh this out. Uh, maybe after this call, we'll see if we can put a business plan together. Oh, Boyd, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll see if we can put a business plan together. So, <laughs> as as we wrap up, what 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 is kind of like the one thing you want to leave the audience with and thinking about for this next year as it relates to continuing uh, professional education in the accounting community? Um, I think that. One of the largest things we need to start thinking of is the member experience, what we just talked about, relevancy. How are we relevant to their day-to-day life? Are we relevant to their day-to-day life? Because I think right now we aren't for a lot of our members. How do we create that tie to us where they don't just want to be involved, but they need to be involved? Um, What are we unique at providing to our uh, either members or attendees? so that they will come to us and nowhere else. I know relevancy is something that a lot of state studies have always talked about. And it's hard because each person has a different pain point. But if you can find out generally what the pain points are and try to address as many as possible, 
that's how you're going to keep your membership because Jennifer said something earlier about how the next generation is coming up and the baby boomers are retiring and everything. Well, guess what? Those baby boomers were your checkbook members. Generation X, Y, and Z are not checkbook members. They want to know what they're getting out of the organization to be part of the organization. So we have to really think about our strategy and our business model very differently going forward. You're right. And so as you were talking, a thought came into my head. I think I think to, to maintain that loyalty within within the, the our, our members, the ability to put cheeks in the seat and not have to cancel course goes a long way. And I know it's, that's a pain point for members when we have to cancel a course. So as I'm sitting here as one who provides this type of product to the state societies, how can we help you put cheeks in the seat? How can we help you in that marketing of these programs? I know I've tried video in the past and, and a few other things, uh, but there's got to be a way that we can help you to grow that audience for, for these sessions. There's this concept in marketing. It's the push-pull theory. Do we push marketing content out to our members or do we pull them into our business with addressing a need that they have? And so I think that marketing and, and choosing different tools and techniques to market to members is great. You know, I, I think Facebook has allowed anyone to become a marketer of any kind of business. And so the market's a little saturated out there, in my opinion. So the best way to really, for us to build loyal customers together from vendors and educators standpoint is really to give them the content that they don't even know that they need yet. So um, right now on Horizon, certifications are really big with millennials um, and the early uh, generation Xers. And so how, how can we help our members and customers obtain certifications or additional knowledge that's going to get them one more rung up the ladder, I think is what we need to look at versus you know, this class that addresses this one topic on leadership. Okay, so how do they turn around and use that to become a better leader every single day? So there's a lot of classes out there that are very theory-driven and do not present in such a way that members and customers can walk away and implement those practices into their everyday business. And, and that even goes not only for management-type courses, but also for tax and auditing and, and accounting courses. When you said this, and, and this is, is my biggest angst, and if somebody asks me what keeps me up at night, is I don't want to come in and be an event. I, I never I wanted to be a one-trick pony because you said leadership. You don't become a leader just because you attend a course. That's right. You become a leader by practicing it every single day. And I have to give that quote to Simon Sinek, who I heard it from, that... Leadership is something we need to practice every day. And I think this goes to the content that we need to be providing that audience continual content after the fact in order to keep it in front of them. If not, they're not going to create that habit. That's right. And that's a challenge for us in who are educators that, you know, how do we follow up after that sale of a course happens and that event happens? What's next? And I don't think we do as great of a job as we can 
to continue that learning experience. And so that is a challenge for us to, to figure out how to keep that going. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast and and the newsletter and stuff like that to keep that constant reminder out there for those who have attended or, or, or signed up for, for the newsletter to keep it in front of them uh, and just trying to find new ways of keeping that content out there. Your thoughts, Michelle? Yeah, I agree. I know some states have tried doing learning tracks, essentially where it's stair-stepping a new member uh, through a series of courses. Maybe you invite them to come network for a free event first. Then you invite them to a lunch and learn that maybe has only a $25 or $50 fee, something nominal. Then you invite them to a seminar or conference. And so you try to stair step them in not only to the membership, but also into the learning process and start them with something that's an overview or an update and, and kind of walk them through. And I think some states have had success with that. We have not tried that here in Oklahoma yet. It's, it's some more work to put that together and to figure out, okay, if you're a a year one through three auditor, what classes do you really need to be successful? Or if you're a CFO, what classes do you need to be successful? And those are drastically different classes. Right. So having to come up with really a variety of customized tracks takes some time and effort. But I think that's what everyone's looking for the easy thing now. You know, people want things fast. People want things easy. They don't want to have to work hard for it. And they want their learning the same way. So they were looking for us to be like, okay, what classes should I take in? You can provide that to them on a silver platter. That's a great relevancy and loyalty item right there. I just think it's trying to figure out how we do it best before we send it out to everyone. I agree. You know, we we can customize everything. For example, for my brother this year, he asked for some customized Nikes, you know, down. You can pick the color of the lace all the way down to the color of the rivets on the where the laces go into it, you know, we customize everything from tennis shoes to, you know, our McDonald's hamburger or whatever. And so I think that it's an expectation in the market right now for us to be more thoughtful and how we make offerings to them. And so what you just said, Michelle, segues exactly into what Pete had asked our biggest takeaway from this conference. And so that segues right into my thought, which is, you know, how do we better learn to introduce ourselves to our members and our customers? And what you were just saying essentially is your your content ramp. How do you get people invested in a small investment way into your organization? And how can you offer them better and better experiences and content along the way? So that, that way, along this journey, we're cultivating a valuable and even beautiful friendship between the two, you know, our members and our organization and give them what they need. And then they want to be invested and involved with us in the future because they know we're invested and involved in them as well. That's an excellent point. That's a, and and I, I have to say that I, I, I love this conversation. Actually, I, we could probably do this for two hours, but we do have to keep this short. So I will, I will stop it now. But what I want, I, I know you guys are busy. Thank you so very much for taking time to, to share your thoughts on this topic, uh, which is a very important topic with, within the, the accounting profession. And Michelle, congratulations on a successful chairmanship of the conference. And I know you're looking forward to next year when you don't have to do anything, but just show <laughs> up. That is true. Thank, yes, Peter, thank you so much for having us today. It's been really great chatting with you guys. And yes, next year, I anticipate the new committee and new committee chair, whoever that is, because we don't have it quite set yet, will do a fabulous job of 
continuing these objectives. And it'll be nice to actually attend a full conference. That's the hardest part is being the chairs. You don't actually get to sit through all the sessions. So I didn't, I feel like I didn't learn quite as much as I normally do as a normal attendee, but it was still a great experience and a wonderful conference. And I'm glad everyone that, to everyone that came. Yeah. And, and I look forward to seeing you guys next year at the conference. Uh, and, um, I enjoy you guys' company so much. I greatly appreciate taking time and uh, thank you both so very much. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Wow. I'm joined right now with uh, two esteemed gentlemen from the AICPA, Chris Fleck and Brett Johnson. And I say that in a funny way because there's a great story behind it. If you ever see Brett or run into him, have him tell you the story about his his name. But beside that, First and foremost, guys, thank you for taking time out of your hectic schedule to kind of debrief from the 2018 National CPE Educators Conference that happened in New Orleans. And these guys were part of a pre-conference, pre-meeting before the conference kicked off. And, and they called it the, the, the food group meeting where a lot of state society folks got together and collaborated with AICPA, and, and I'll let them explain it to you, but welcome, guys. I appreciate you taking time. Looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here and great to talk to you again, and I will share that story about my name and why that's, why that's an interesting story. If anybody who's willing to buy me a pint um, <laughs> at some point in the future. But um, the one thing I want to say kind of at the outset is, you know, the, the name of the uh, the meeting was food group kind of by default because it was a lot of the people who come from that food group group of, of professionals originally. And Chris can tell you what food stands for. But, uh, you know, when we when we first started kind of, you know, the whole idea was about in, how do we innovate? How do we skate to where the puck's going to be to use an overused um you know, phrase from uh, Wayne Gretzky, but they, we had started having some conversations with a few states. We uh, originally called it the Escape Room Committee because of a idea that Rebecca Campbell had about uh, having some the CPAs learn in a escape room type environment. Think of something creative, which was very creative, and that was kind of the genesis of the group that we met with in New Orleans. But it just kept growing because we kept thinking, oh, we should be we should include this person and that person. And, and, you know, Chris, I think it might've been only like a, a week before when he real knew who was on the list. And there were a number of other people who we <laughs> would have wanted to have had there. And we, we would have had probably, we would have had representatives from every state if we, if we had really thought about it because of how, how it grew and how great it was having insight from states of all different sizes. But, it, you know, it, it the long and the short of it is that it really was about innovation. How do we work differently together? But Chris, where did that name, the, the food group, come from again? Okay, so don't quote me on this. But this is, <laughs> been, like I said, 10, 10 to 15 years ago when I first came into this business. Well, actually, it's been 17 now. But when I came into this business, there was a group of, I want to say, five or six people who would get together regularly, maybe twice a year in different locations. And it was called for our, I believe it stood for, for our own development. Um, but over the years, obviously that group has changed and moved. And I don't even know if that's, that's probably not what they still call it. So it's probably something totally different now, but they've kept the acronym food intact. So I, I forgot to ask you guys before we started. So Chris, what is your role at the AICPA? So my role, my title is a senior manager of state society learning. So basically 
over the years, I've always kind of been in charge of the live seminar training. So obviously, we, we have a pretty robust live seminar business. But obviously, as you know, over the years, as seminars have decreased in popularity, um, we have increased our, our um, presence in the webcast world and, you know, in the on-demand world. And, and we, now we have these new certificates. So I basically work with the state societies on all the different products that we sell and that they, in turn, resell to their members. So, you know, I work with the states on webcasts, work with them on all the different products that we offer that the states sell. And that's a lot of products. Yeah. There's not much shelf room left in the, in the closet where all the products are being, being housed. <laughs> there are just so many, you know, new things that, you know, we're just developing and these new certificate programs, which are so popular. So, you know, a lot's shifting, you know, a lot has shifted just in the past two to three years in terms of what they, what they're offering. So what are these certificate programs? Just out of curiosity, because I, I don't know if I'm really actually knowledgeable about that. Okay, so the, we have uh, several different certificate programs. The very first certificate program we came out with, gosh, this would have probably been uh, 2008, 9, 10, somewhere around in there, was the IFRS certificate program. Yeah. And basically, okay. it's an it's an on-demand program. And at the end, you get this certificate. And you know now we have digital badges where you can you know put it on your LinkedIn profile and things of that nature. But gosh, there, there are so many more that we've developed over the years. I don't know, Brett, how many do you think we have? Maybe, I don't know, 10 to 15? Somewhere in there. I know that there are digital badges for like 16 or 17 different things, but I think that includes the credentials uh, as well. Uh But a a lot of it has gone towards, or I guess the, you know, IFRS was a pretty fundamental type of certificate, but a lot, you know, more recently, We've been working on things like data analytics and blockchain and cybersecurity, which came out last October. Uh, so even okay. more hot topic kind of things. And, you know, just real quick, I, yeah, but we were just talking about this with another group internally, but this is a, those are products that are really interesting to younger CPAs mm-hmm. that are interesting as differentiators. And that was one of the things we covered in our state society meeting with our partners back in October. It's a great way to reach that younger demographic and keep them engaged. And what's your role at the ASAPA? I'm the director of channel management and development for the association. And so that's global in nature. The The states are where we really cut our teeth on a lot of these programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also work with you know IFAC organizations and commercial training organizations. And my team also does licensing and so we do a lot of different partnering types of partnering. Okay. So this meeting, I, I guess the one question I have is what was the what was the main pain point or was there a main pain point that you guys came together and were trying to solve? Well, there was one we decided to put aside and that first pain point was Peter Margaritas. <laughs> Everyone agreed you were a pain. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first, no, you'd be the last. <laughs> 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 but we, we there, the pain that we talked about were within the these the hard trends of of uh, demographics, technology, and government and, and regulation. Okay. So you know, I think we came up with different trends there that, that created opportunities. I think the way that Amy had us organize it were the trends, the opportunities, the predictable problems, mm-hmm. and you know. We, I, we could tell you what the trends were in the three different categories if you want. Sure. Could, sure. Okay. Well, in demographic, 
uh, it was the retiring baby boomers. Um, it was also that there are more younger uh, people in the workforce. I mean, this is a really obvious trend that creates all kinds of problems when it comes to learning because you have um, different learning styles and people who grew up with smartphones not even ever realizing that their you know great grandparents probably didn't play the very first Call of Duty online. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I say that as you know uh, the father of a teenage son who once asked me that when he was a little bit younger. You know, with the baby boomers retiring and with the the younger generation really being uh, dynamic in some really cool ways still also creates some challenges with how do you reach them? How do you help them learn? So that those were the trends in demographic mm-hmm. and government. I think government and regulations, it was, there was an increase in regulation. We all identified tax reform, which if you hadn't heard happened, you know, towards the end of last year. Um, I, all I heard and, was the ca- all I heard was a cash register going off. <laughs> Do you teach tax? Uh, I used to years ago, and I know, I know when I first when when the reform came through and it was signed into law, all I just kept hearing was these cash registers going off because there's a new demand for this information that we have the opportunity to provide. Yeah, def- definitely, and it is it is a huge opportunity. And I'll just jump ahead to the trends in technology, not to go too deep into the tax. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Because, and it would, one thing I will say, um, by the way, there's huge kudos go out to the team for creating products so quickly on that. that that's been very helpful for us. Chris has been a big part of getting that out there with our state partners. But the the technology trends are, you know, really the globalization of business the automation of the profession, the different platforms uh, that make learning accessible and and create other challengers and competitors for us, I think was another specialization. It's something that we, that the profession is doing. People are specializing to keep a high level of of relevance, but it's also, you've got to because of what, you know, the end customer needs and what we, uh, in in the profession need to provide, you know, knowing about Bitcoin, knowing about um, blockchain, knowing about cybersecurity, like that. Chris, I got a question for you. As it relates to demographics and in this conversation, did some of the conversation lead towards the demographics of the discussion leader pool? Uh, no, we did not discuss the discussion leader pool at all. That was, it was more just the, you know, the workplace and, and, you know, the purchasers of our products. But that, that also, too, is, a, is an issue that we continually face as well. Yeah, Kristen Rampey did a, a really nice job uh, on her session about some of the demographics as it relates to the discussion leaders and, and how, that all, how that all comes together. I didn't know if you guys had talked about that. But, but thinking about the demographics and you've got this diversity, when you were describing that, I was in Philadelphia two days ago doing a session for PICPA and this partner in this firm. And I thought, I said, don't you know what day it is? This is like April 3rd. You're supposed to be at the office, not, you know, here in my class. And he said, well, we don't do that much compliance anymore. We've kind of gotten out of the compliance business. And he went on to say, I mean, he had to be mid, mid to late 60s. And he goes, we can't continue to think back in the day 
back in, the, as we say, the good old days. We need to, he goes, we need to think young. We need to think like the, the young folks and think about how we are going to mold and change into the future, not the way it was 10, 15 years ago. And, and I almost fell over because, I mean, he's spot on. Uh, on that, that mindset about we need to think like the, the the millennials. We need to think like what do they need, not what, what we've done. They should do the same thing. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I, I would think it would be the opposite, you know, in terms of they wouldn't, that we need to get them to be thinking like that. But that's interesting. Yeah, he uh, he said oh, he saw early on that compliance was going to be way too much of a commodity or, or be overtaken by technology, by by blockchain or, or by AI or whatever. And over time, and it sounded to me like it was about a seven-year period, they went from compliance-based to more an advisory role with their clients. And I know uh, this has been said uh, in Maryland through Tom Hood that and a lot of writing that's been out there. That's kind of the way the profession's going. But it, it was refreshing to see that someone actually said, yeah, this is what we're doing because we want to be relevant to our clients in the future. And that it, it's interesting that you say that because that was one of the things when we talked about the technology trends, you know, the increase in automation that we're going to see in the profession over the next, you know, three to five years. And, you know, basically we're being charged with reskilling the profession, you know, and that's a big thing within our group here at the association in terms of what's that going to look like? What, you know, what, what skills do our professionals need going forward? You know, it may not be, like you said, all of the compliance stuff because maybe they don't do that much work in that, that area anymore. So that was, another, that was a big discussion we had on this particular day. So does that tie back to the Horizons 2025 project that came out with what CPAs, the competencies CPAs need in the future with the communication skills, the leadership skills, the collaboration, synthesizing, and two or three others? Yeah, yeah I, th I think it really does. And, you know, it's just, it's a matter of how do we get, how do we get people to engage and embrace that? Because as you know, as an instructor who, who you know, teaches a lot of those types of things, you know that, you know, in the past, people have been more interested in coming to to classes that are compliance-based, right? And not your your leadership skills and things of that nature. But that's what they're going to need in the future. So it's a matter of getting them to pay attention to that. And I think that's a, I think that's a huge challenge because how do you get their attention? How, where's the, the the pain points there? I, I, I mean, I, I see some firms recognizing that, that pain point that, you know, I, I hear a lot about we've got high turnover, we can't keep people, whatever. Uh, that goes to a lot of those leadership skills, a lot of that ability to communicate and collaborate with others and, and more of a free flow versus the old um, top-down approach. But a lot, of, a lot of firms, a lot of organizations are structured in that top-down situation. Yeah, because with, with the automation, I mean, th those are the skills that are going to set these people apart in the future, right? So with the automation, I mean, Anybody's going to be able to, you know, that that compliance work is not going to be where where they're where they're at. So these skills are what's going to set them apart in the future. <laughs> at that session, I had this. It was a millennial. I made the comment that I believe Excel will be extinct in the near future, and we won't need a ten key or a calculator because everything will be uploaded. And he thought I was absolutely bonkers. He goes, we still have to do calculations. I said, the calculations will be done for us. And it was just, 
it was almost, and I, I was expecting the response I got from him from the older folks in the room, but the older folks in the room were going, yep. And they were just telling this guy, yeah, that's the way we're moving. That's the way we're going. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. We, I was just going to say, we've seen some pretty encouraging responses to the human intelligence series that the communication has done on the Facebook Live platform uh, where they, you know, we, I don't know, they went out and I don't know how long it's been going on, six or nine months. And I think we've already had 2 million views of those. And they're, they're really focusing on those skills that you're talking about. Um, and it's interesting is Michael Grant did one and he was, he was talking about, you know, a personal brand. And he mentioned the fact that there was some source that he quoted that said the number one reason that people lose their job is because of their interpersonal skills. It's not their technical skills. It's these soft topics that we treat as less important that, as it turns out, are the most important things. So from this group's perspective and talking to them, how do you get action or things moving forward in this direction with the states and this with this issue? What, what what kind of, now that we're, we've talked about it, what were those next steps that they were thinking about needed to happen in order for this to get some traction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first step is we, we came to realize that, you know, the state societies and the association, we have to do a better job with collaborating with each other. We obviously at the association have a lot of stuff, right? A lot of, you know, <laughs> resources. education or resources. There's the <laughs> word I needed. Resources. We have a lot of resources to share. And so, um, and the states obviously, you know, they, they resources, you know, whether it's education or whether it's, you know, the free stuff that comes from, you know, the small firm group or, or what have you, but the state societies themselves have a lot of stuff as well. And so I think the first step we have to do is we have to collaborate more. And so that's where we're at, you know, and Brett can maybe say a little bit more to this, but that's the point we're at now. How do, what is it going to look like? where we can collaborate and share our resources because our members, all of our members need it. Yeah, that, that, that was one of the, I, I think the big item that we spent, really spent some time on was how do we, how do, we do that? And, you know, the, the, you know, who owns that process? And we're working on it together. But so that Maryland or Ohio or, you know, someone else doesn't create what we're, we're all creating it at the same time. That's really inefficient. You know, we, you know, we have, we are already as um, ourselves selling some of the state uh, society content and they're selling ours. So is it worth everybody dropping $50,000 to develop X? No, it doesn't make any sense. And especially when we are serving the profession, right? And we, we will create content that might have an audience that doesn't, that doesn't dictate that it's, uh, you know, a big commercial opportunity, but we do it to serve the profession. And so if five of us do that, then that makes it even less efficient, right? And so it, it, you know, that's, that's one of the big things that we need to figure out uh, that we need to, to spend some time on and, and that I think we're even a little off schedule on with that, but we need to do follow-up there. But that, that definitely resonated with everyone in the room. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've witnessed over time that we all want to re- recreate our own wheel, even though the wheel has already been created someplace else. And we could all probably 
gain much more through collaboration and putting things together as as a group versus, well, if you've got yours, then I want mine, but I want to make it my own and this branding and, and like you said, throwing how many dollars down the rabbit hole where we could partner and, sh- and sharing those resources and sharing that revenue stream. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, you know, with more, you know, more regulation and, and things of that nature on what you develop, you know, as far as, you know, NASBA regulations and things like that, you know, it, it's a lot, it takes a lot of resources as a, as a small state society to actually develop content, you know, when you could actually, you know, collaborate with another state society that's already done it. Right. I agree. I don't want to jump to technology real quick because what did you guys talk about with the change in technology, you know, blockchain, AI, whatever, but what about the technology in the classroom? Did you guys just go down that path, how technology is impacting the classroom? We really did. I don't remember going down that path. Do you, Brett? Yeah, we did a little. Um, I would say, you know, one thing we acknowledged is the need to use the different technologies to, to reach especially um, younger audiences. Um, that's one thing. Uh, we also talked about the barrier to entry for education is, is lower with technology, right? Like if you do something in a, on a, in a virtual platform, as long as you can get to the students, you know, and you're in, I don't know, small town in Illinois, like I was growing up, you know, you, you could have people attending from um, all over the country. So it, both complicates and makes things easier, I think, is, is the answer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Chris, mm-hmm. do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of state societies embracing, you know, the technology through whether it's a simulcast or whatnot, because they see opportunities within their states. You know, they can't serve members. You know, if you're in Iowa, you can't serve members in Storm Lake and Dubuque and, you know, all these small towns. So this is a way for them to serve all of their their members. One one note I was it just this just popped into my head, you know the state size embracing technology, but and Pete will get a kick out of this. I had one instructor. He he last year was his last year to teach for us, and he was still using an overhead projector. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a couple of state societies. His home state and he was a fantastic instructor, like a really really well respected instructor. And there was a state society who actually kept the overhead projector after all these years. <laughs> I'm just, I just can't imagine. He, wow. uh, he was real heartbroken uh, several years ago when we stopped making transparencies. So, <laughs> so I, now I, I have seen a, an overhead projector, more high tech where you don't need the transparencies. You can write it on a piece of paper and it projects up, but <laughs> well, yeah, so, no, that's, that's old school. <laughs> oh yeah, old old school. But but with with, with technology in, in the classroom, so being one of these inst- these instructors who do travel, I mean, travel costs are state societies are very cognizant about these travel costs, and, and can it could either make or break the session, uh, depending upon attendance. And, and I know Hayden Williams and I we, we tested this a couple of years ago where he was going to cancel one of the courses out in out in Washington, he had kind of almost enough, but not quite there. I said, well, we tested Adobe Connect in San Antonio the first year for this national conference. Why don't we give it a shot? I was in my office like I am now for eight hours. They were there. We could interact, but I just didn't physically have to be there, but it was almost like that I was. And two years ago, the technology was pretty good, but 
according to some of the attendees, I did sound a little bit like a Godzilla movie at times. For those who remember the mouth moves and the words finally catch up. But have, has that been explored in any additional depth? Yeah, actually, it, it really has. We've had to do that on an, like an emergency basis a couple of years ago where an instructor could not get to a location due to flight problems. But there are a couple of state societies of tax reform when we had that at the beginning of the year where they didn't want to pay the travel costs just for somebody to come out one day. And so the, that particular instructor actually taught it just like you said from their office. And um, it was it went just fine. I think we're going to see more of that because more and more state societies have that capability now, um, we even polled all of our instructors, and um, that was one of the questions we asked them, are you willing to do this? Because not everybody is, right? Not everybody's comfortable with the technology, but we do actually in our database have it flagged whether or not an instructor will do that. So I, I see it in the future, we'll be doing more of that. Not surprising at all that it was Hayden that you were doing that innovation with. He has a bit of a reputation. Yeah, he does, and he is he's very much an, innov- an innovator. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that was actually, you know, I, I do love traveling. I do like traveling, love traveling, I, but I really love going out to Seattle, uh, that, that part of the country. I was a little disappointed I couldn't go, but I, I didn't want the class to cancel. And that, that's always been my, con- my concern, you know, having some, spent some time on, on the Ohio Society board and even chairing the board, I get that part of the business. And when, when we start canceling classes, the members start losing trust. And they start looking elsewhere for classes that they can take that that have a uh, not, that are unlikely to cancel webinars and things like that. And I think if we want to kind of bring seminars alive again, that that we have to have some other alternatives to make sure that we're still holding them in, t- in some type of live environment and not and not canceling them. Yeah, it's it's been a struggle the last couple of years. You know, we've yeah. definitely seen. The numbers decrease, but you know, some there are people that still like that live interaction. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, say five years from now, what that live seminar is going to look like. I don't like, and I know um, contrary to trends, but I'd much rather learn face to face. But I, I just want to say something related to that, and that is with the virtual technology, it's actually a different skill set from an instructor perspective. And so you may have somebody who's really good in the room. They kind of need to reskill a little bit, right, Chris, as far as if they're going to, you know, they may not come out as well in reviews when they're, you know, if they don't have experience in delivering through a virtual platform. Yeah, I think, you know, we didn't have an instructor symposium this year. Last year when we had it, we did bring a guy in who, you know, he, um, his, he specializes in virtual training. And it just kind of, I think, just touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of the information that they need. But I think going forward, that's going to be critical. It's going to be just as critical as teaching somebody how to, you know, and Pete, you know, been to many of these, you know, like train the trainer sessions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where, you know, you learn how to make the class more interactive. I mean, I think the technology is going to be just as important going forward. Yeah, actually, uh, you remember, you remember Len Nichols. Yes, yes. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn's still around. And actually, Chris Jenkins out of South Carolina contracted both Lynn and myself to develop a two and a half day discussion leader academy for a group of CPAs who are, are, are South Carolina based that he wanted to give them this, this type of training. 
And it was an it was an absolute blast, and they loved it. And next, we're in the process of trying to reschedule it again for another group here in the, in the in the month of June. Very it, very cool. It, it helps with you know the, the ability to engage an audience in the classroom is critical to that learning versus that lecture head uh, and the, just delivering of information. You've got to engage that audience. I will say it's a little difficult at times to engage CPAs. Oh, that. I had one gentleman tell me once, no, 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 I don't engage me. I'm just here to sit and listen. I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm going, okay, that's fine. To this set of content and, and learning, you guys did mention about technology. I, I'm, I'm seeing more and more written in state societies and, and like accounting today in the Journal of Accounting about blockchain and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Are we, do we have products that we are delivering at the national and state level? On these topics, is anybody teaching blockchain? Yeah, at the state society level, I haven't seen a whole lot of it. You know, we don't have, I mean, we do have, you know, some learning surrounding that right now. But, you know, I think we're kind of in the early stages of that. When you think of, you know, at the state society level, you teach seminars, right, at the state society level. When you go into that classroom, I mean, am I correct in saying that most of the people in there are your sole practitioners, your smaller firms, you know, some people from business and industry? I mean, and those folks right now are not the ones who are probably interested necessarily in blockchain yet, right? Right. Um, you know, I think you know we're we're kind of in the early stages of all of of, of that. Um, wouldn't you agree with that, Brett? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say it's there is content coming in very short order that I think is going to be in that digital format. You know, of self-paced learning. Um, and I, I even think some of the stuff that we're working on has augmented reality aspects to it. I mean, it's really cool. But yeah, as far as face-to-face learning at this point, I don't think it's it's quite there yet. Well, I would assume that if it's not at this level yet, that the bigs are doing it at their level. They've got some type of... of content or a discussion leader or that subject matter expert that's helping them understand this process. Well, we, we are working with um, certain uh, industry leaders as well. I know in blockchain that we are, I know in cyber security we have. So, and that's kind of a new thing for us is, is um, with all the specialization, you have to, you have to reach out and get some people who really are digging into the, to the cracks of some of this stuff. Yeah, I think the one thing that fascinated me was, did you attend Amy Vetter's opening keynote session? Yes. You did? Brett, did you, have yes. you already left? You left? I came in for the uh, food group slash escape uh, club committee, uh, escape room committee, mm. and then I left, so okay. I missed it. Amy was talking about, I mean, she's an IT expert, wonderful speaker, but she was talking about the different levels of machine learning that my head just went because I don't think I really realized that but I'm now that I've she's brought it to my attention, I see it that the machine will actually learn and improve its processes as it continues to learn more and in my mind that's a whole other ball of wax yeah, that's all that's a whole other universe out there. <laughs> You're talking about some Isaac Asimov stuff right there. Seriously, <laughs> seriously, that machine that that, that learns and, and grows, you know, it's it's really cool. How? I wish I 
don't unplug me, Hal. Not right now, Hal. We can't do that. And and, and wrapping up, what what other uh, marching orders? I don't like that word. What what other initiatives that the states are undertaking, and that we're going to circle back and make sure that we're all holding each other accountable in, in solving that those pain points? Was there something there that we haven't discussed that needs to be discussed? I want to. I'll throw this out there. We, you know, that meeting was about innovation and additional innovation. It should be noted that we have been innovating together on a lot of things outside of that meeting and process. So, you know, we're working together on on the self-study on demand or e-learning content and, you know, working with the states that, you know, we have branded portals for state societies. You know, a lot of it is about the, the soft interaction of you know, a state society member coming to a state to buy something, getting an email that says thank you from the state, um, going to a portal that's got the state's brand on it, and that's all enabled by technology that we've been working on. And so in, in different states, taking, um, taking their lumps with us on that, which I think <laughs> is great. So that, I, you know, that, that sort of thing is ongoing, and we, in, in sort of natural, I don't know how, how else to say it, it's like, we didn't really plan for it. It's just been necessary. But uh, coming out of the meeting, Chris, would you say, I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, the the, the action items, or should I say, from, you know, that meeting, you know, first, you know, all these different states, they have to go back and, you know, kind of get the buy-in from their leadership, you know, to move forward with whatever this, whatever that is going to morph out of this, you know, whether it's going to be a centralized database, whether it's going to be, you know, housing all the different stuff that the state societies have. They got to get the buy-in from the leadership. And then then from there, we've got to figure out who are they going to be the key players? You know, who's going to who's going to host the technology or who's going to develop it? How is it going to get built? You know, so those are, those are all things that are, will be down the road. I believe, as I'm looking here at my notes, I believe we already missed the first, <laughs> the first date, uh, which was uh, getting the buy-in from leadership. But I'm actually going to follow up with one of the guys from the, the meeting uh, today before I leave to see where we're at on that. So, so that was, that's kind of the first step. And then, you know, we'll take steps two and three once on down the road. But we also have, um, as you know, an interchange meeting or this conference that takes place every July. And so that's going to be kind of a a time when we can kind of get back to get this group back together and um, probably knock out some, some planning at that meeting. Yeah, I, I think it's it's I think that, that that challenge of getting the buy-in from leadership, and, and the I think the definition of leadership is 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 two parts. One, getting the buy-in from the CEO or the executive director of the association or society, and two, getting the buy-in from the board. Yeah, and yeah, that's two two separate problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, two separate two because I think getting the buy-in from the from the exact that's not going to be as difficult, but getting the buy-in from the board and having them recognize the urgency here as well as the pain points and it's almost like I, I would love to go in and, and you know you're presenting something like this. And you start getting, but we can't do that. We, you know, how we, that, that, that kind of atmosphere and just go, let's try this. What if we could, what would that look like? And just, we've all played the what if game. What if I win the lottery? I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now, right? Okay. 
bingo. And actually, I, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Brad Hoffman, who's a partner in a firm in Maryland, DeLong and Stang, I interviewed him for part of my upcoming book. And he mentioned this that he does with his clients. When they kind of push back, we can't do that. He goes, well, just humor me for a moment. What if we could? What would it look like? And it's like you're giving them permission now that they can kind of think crazy or, or how, what would this look like? And it's, it goes, it's amazing what happens when you give them that permission. Yeah, I think one of the challenges there on that we can't do this that I, that I find really interesting is the we tried it before and it didn't work. That, <laughs> yeah. That's another one. And, and it's, um, you know, well, I tried... Maybe I would have loved to have had a phone that I could actually walk around it with when I was in high school, but they have them now, you know, and, and things change so quickly that, you know, something that wasn't possible the year before could be possible in, in the very next year. So that, but that's an interesting one because so many things can make things fail, but that's, that's an easy excuse that people need to get past, I think. Oh, I, I, you saw me jump out of my chair when you said that because, yeah, that's the other one. And it goes like, well, how, how long ago did you try that? My wife and I were having this conversation last night. How long ago did they try it? Well, that may have been three or four years ago. Technology has changed. Maybe we could do it now. Yeah, yeah you, you, Pete, of all people know you can't do it. You got to dump Sally, right? <laughs> yeah, you got to dump. You can't have the same as last year, <laughs> right? You got to you got to dump Sally. And actually, I had one group say, "Isn't that a little harsh? Shouldn't we just let her down easy?" And you know, I said, "No, <laughs> no, we got to dump her, and move forward. We got we got to come to a, a a portion of of that when we talk about innovation. It's innovation. I we get I, I looked at innovation. I said, "There's two pieces to that. One is creativity, and one is." applying that, that effectively apply creativity. And if we can get organizations to think, I need the, the quantity of ideas in order to get the quality ones and create an atmosphere that allows for these ideas, albeit crazy ones at times, and, and not be punitive in nature. And, and you'll get so many ideas out of people that you wouldn't believe if you create that culture that allows that. And I think that's also part of getting past a lot of these challenges that we have. Yeah, I, w I would definitely agree with that. You got to create the culture, just kind of like all these, you know, these soft skills that we're talking about that we're going to need in the future. You also have to position your organization to, to embrace that. Right, exactly. And, and not make it sound like wizardry, right? So <laughs> right. you're not inventing the light bulb. I mean, a lot, a lot of these things can be really simple. The best ideas are small, you know, are simple ideas. Exactly. And the other, we'll kind of begin to wrap up on this, but Jennifer Alexa said this, that when she was listening to Amy Vetter's presentation, you know, Amy was talking a lot about firms, but then she said it dawned on her. She's also talking indirectly to state societies about how they have to change and redesign themselves in order to meet that. And that was her that was her big aha moment from that keynote was this not just about the firms, it's about us as a society, us as a CPE deliverer, that we need to do that same process. Yeah, absolutely. How, how do you stay relevant? Because if you're not relevant, your members aren't going to be there. That's right. And you've, you've lost all types of trust. 
Uh, any last words, gentlemen, before we wrap this up? All I have to say is go Cubs. I mean, go Cubs, go. <laughs> I'm looking at Chris. He's wearing his uh, a cub jacket. He's got cub stuff all over the place. I, I believe he might be one of the outside of Bill Murray, one of the big Cubs fans. Uh, that that and if they weren't in the division, I, I root for the Cubs except when they play and beat the Reds. Yeah. Lately. Lately. Yeah. It, it, I, I actually I don't the Reds are fine as long as we we can agree though that we don't like St. Louis. Right? Oh yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. That's that's okay. the easy okay. agree. What about you, Brett? What you got? Well, go Cubs as well. Of course, I'm a Cubs fan. It's one of the <laughs> things that um, really bring Chris and I together. But last thoughts, I, I think we've covered just about everything. And it's just, we need to go out and find the time and do the work. You're right. We got to find the time. We got to get the work done. And we got to keep this in front of our, uh, in the forefront of our minds. And, and that's really the reason why I wanted to do these interviews to kind of help you guys out. And, and keeping the message alive and, and so we can move forward and, and maintain our relevance. So I will wrap up by saying thank you both very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the next time we run into each other because I'm going to have a whole lot of people buy pints for Brett so he can tell the story. Brett Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Pete. I would like to thank Michelle, Jennifer, Chris, and Brett for sharing their thoughts and perspectives from the conference on how we can begin to develop and design the CPE for the future. In episode three, my guest is Eddie Turner, who's a specialist and a deep generalist. He is a certified information technology expert with digital marketing, social media, and leadership development experience. Thank you for listening and begin the process of changing your mindset and getting out of your comfort zone and develop new skill sets to become more future ready. Remember, this is a process that requires daily application with a big dose of applied improvisation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.